0: Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse.
1: Today on tap we have Assault on Precinct 13, starring Austin Stoker, Darwin Johnston, and Laurie Zimmer, written and directed by John Carpenter. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time for a brand new film review cask, a brand new bottle of of whiskey here. Uh, this one kind of being like single location, quarantine-ish set films, Yeah, really looking at films that utilize one location very well. And yeah, we're starting with the film from 1976 by John Carpenter, Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, when's the last time you saw that movie, Matt?
0: Oh, gosh. In total start to finish? Yeah. Probably never. Yeah. Uh, so first time viewing through pr- this would be it. All right. Um, not entirely n- all of it new, but from cre- fade in to fade out, this would be the first full viewing.
1: Excellent. So, so this the- is a
0: High West blend, this bottle, huh? Yeah,
1: exactly. So High West, I, I think, you know what, like, I I love the design of the High West uh, whiskey bottle. It' Very Western-like. Which is very appropriate for today, yeah. but this is the Yippie Kaye. It's a blend of straight rye whiskeys, and I actually have a little bit of information on what we should be experiencing here. So, <laughs> it's a blend of. I'm going to try and do my best, Daniel. Uh, a blend of straight rye whiskeys aged for between two to sixteen years in new charred white American oak barrels. Finished off in French oak barrels that were previously used for for wine, so vermouth and uh, syrah wines. Interesting. Yeah, so whiskey kind of given the second go about in wine barrels. Let's give it a go. Ninety-two proof. Yeah, this is going to be um, yeah pretty pretty high there. So cheers. Cheers. And you know what's interesting about it is, it's almost got a little kind of like a red a red golden kind of kind of look and i wonder if that is from the wine
0: i was going to say it looks like port right mhm huh that's a very unique taste what
1: are you smelling there vanilla vanilla yeah mine smells a little like a little fruity almost like dried fruit
0: Yeah, I get that there too.
1: But it has a nice, it's almost a a sweet taste. Again, which is, this is a blend of rye whiskeys. I always kind of just attribute rye with a bit harsher taste than a traditional bourbon. But this one has a nice smooth. And I I do wonder if it is from the way it's processed and made and aged in those particular barrels.
0: Well, with 92 proof, it's not short on the alcohol, which would give it that kick too. And it's not overbearing like the Booker's. Mm -hmm. Um, Hmm not bad it's a nice bottle excellent
1: excellent so this will this will treat us pretty well We'll see how much of a dent we can can do in this thing in this cast but let's get to our flight question That little music's a perfect segue into our flight question. I mean, it's the what leads us directly into to watching the film through the opening credits is that boom 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 boom, boom
0: that theme synth baseline
1: synth baseline. He he, he said he kind of derived a little bit of that off of like the the Lalo Schiffen's Dirty Harry score and the immigrant song by you can kind of hear Bum, da 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 carpenters no stranger to writing and you know performing his own scores and it kind of defines i think a lot of the films that he makes so i thought it'd be fun to kind of talk a little bit about his music and our potentially favorite carpenter score which is going to be pretty hard to do but i think we said let's leave halloween out that's a very unanimous choice and iconic theme so bar that what are score from one of his films um
0: I hope I don't take yours on this. Do you want to go first? No, you go first. Because mine's going to be kind of unexpected. I think when you look at this movie, you can see the notes that make a John Carpenter film a John Carpenter film. Whether that's reusing some of the same cast members, and I hope we get into that because as we were talking, there's some very interesting six degrees of separation, Kevin Bacon style in this, that will be fun to talk about. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think that bit that you just played most closely remember closely resembles, I think in a lot of ways everything that was John Carpenter's career, mm-hmm. and it's the ending to the thing. It certainly has. That's my favorite.
1: Mm-hmm. Now that's interesting because, well, that score sounds like Carpenter. That is in fact uh, Ennio Morricone, who just passed away like last week.
0: Yeah, he did just pass away.
1: 92, I believe he was.
0: That's so strange. See, I didn't even know that. Mm -hmm. I just assumed that was Carpenter. Because it sounds like him. You're going to let me have that anyway? Yeah. All right. So I'm going to go with that. Um, And again, maybe that's also (laughs) emblematic of John Carpenter's career. Mm -hmm. Someday we'll get into what happened and look at the sum total of what the thing represented for John Carpenter because that was big budget Mm -hmm. that didn't play for any number of reasons. And we can talk about that for hours. It'd be a great conversation. Mm -hmm. But I think like you telling me that right now Mm -hmm. just reaffirms what I had already thought. Yeah. (sighs) Underutilized, underappreciated, and wildly over over delivers with ridiculously small budgets. Mm -hmm. And when granted, a big budget Morricone does his best impersonation of John Carpenter really? inspired by Tangerine dream in some ways. With mm-hmm. the good. Yep. And <laughs> it's not even him. Mm-hmm. And then you think, so like then take Halloween, right? Yeah. The, we can say eyes without a face and we can black Christmas, but let's be clear. That's kind of the beginning of slasher horror in the modern sense. And everybody else came along and stole it and kind of, I don't want to say did it better, but took the credit for what he did.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That's a really long answer to explain why I chose the thing, which isn't even officially his music. But that's the score that I'm going to go with. But
1: evocative of this. Yeah. Yeah. That little, it almost sounds like a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. I've always thought of like the, the, just the, the
0: EKG behind it. The, just
1: the, the, the gestating pulse of this alien just throughout the film. Uh, you see that, that little white box on the floor right there. Yes, so do. that's uh that's the thing soundtrack on vinyl by, by Ennio Morricone. And what's in there though, is John Carpenter's lost a uh, score cues that he wrote before, I think he realized he didn't have enough time to write the full score, uh, but pretty good, pretty good, too. So it could have gone any number of ways, but I, I do love that score by Morricone. Yeah. This was hard for me. As you know, Carpenter's kind of like my, my go-to for, for filmmaker, and some of the stuff we talk about today, I think, is just, man, it's like just like film school 101, especially in like low-budget uh, filmmaking, I thought about the fog that has a great theme. We talked about the music a lot during Escape from New York. Uh, again, Halloween. We're leaving. that out of the, of the running. But this one's actually my favorite of his scores. So this is actually the score to Halloween 3 season of The Witch, which Ugh. is a is a mixed bag of sorts. But actually it offers something that is different than Michael Myers, obviously. But the score by him and kind of in coordination with his, uh, just call him his synthesizer tech, Alan Hobart, is I think a very atmospheric and evocative score that... Um, doesn't uh, have the benefit of relying on that great piano melody from the first couple films. Uh, when we talked about, uh, I think it was the French Connection, we talked about Friedkin's use of of placing uh, uh, music well during the editing process to kind of gauge the pacing and base it off the tempo of the film. I think he, remember we talked about Black Magic Woman for the car chase? Yeah, right. So when I made short films I used to kinda of do the same thing and when I made some horror stuff I used to put that particular those score cues from Season of the Witch into into the editing to kind of just gave uh, or to, to gaze tone and atmosphere. And sometimes it was almost too good. And I was like, oh, I kind of don't want to take it out now. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it, it, it almost just provided enough of a, of a tone there, but that's been always one of my favorite of his scores. Man, the big trouble in little China soundtracks really good too. Mm. <laughs> yeah. boom, boom. And like, just like, it sounds like a big rig driving down the street, which is that, that score. So Starman. Yeah, Starman has pretty good music. Yeah, Christine. Uh yeah, any any number of them. And yeah, he came back to do Halloween 2 and then uh Halloween 2 and 3. And then he came back and scored the 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 last one with his with his son too, which I thought felt more in tune with the the style they were going with that one, but kind of a harkening back to the original of
0: sorts. Well, speaking of his son, didn't you tell me a few years ago they were on tour?
1: Yes. I wanted to go so badly. That's cool. Yeah.
0: Imagine that. Your dad's a filmmaker and you're on tour with him playing synth rock. Yeah. It's cool. That sounds awesome. And so him. Yeah, so him. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter, to me, we can talk about Rebels on the Backlot and the Tarantino Rodriguez sort of throw your middle finger to Hollywood and do it your way. John Carpenter was that guy before that guy was that guy.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Like, I don't have any money, so I guess I'm going to figure out the score. hmm I can kind of play a little bit.
1: Well, let's let's just get right into talk about the film because it's even it even goes deeper than that for this for this film too. So let's, do it. let's get to our cheers. Oh, I love. Cheers. Yeah, I love. We'll talk. The thing will be a fantastic episode one of these days.
0: We might have to do a whole cast just on that. for a a year. <laughs> Well, there's plenty to talk about because I mean, there's ties to ET, and we get into summer release dates versus when. There's a whole lot to talk about with uh-huh,
1: that. Yeah, that's a, that's a loaded film. Excellent. Let's get to our uh, discussion on Assault on Precinct 13. It's terror in the night. It's the most shattering assault on a police station in history. Assault on
0: Precinct 13.
1: This is the siege. It's a goddamn siege. You wanna stay here and hold until somebody comes, okay? We're in the middle of a city, inside a police station. Isn't that a very 1970s trailer? Oh yeah. (laughs) Last week for League of Extraordinary, I played that trailer, and it's like they're the only people in a world that can only save themselves. Like that's (laughs) like early 2000s trailer. It's that guy. Like this one, it's like let me just show you like nearly the entire film in the trailer, and we'll have a little bit of voiceover. Like the trailers in the 70s and the they're they're like almost four minutes long. Oh yeah, (laughs) they give away a
0: lot. They sure do.
1: Okay, so Assault on Precinct 13, we talked about it just right from the get-go. You know, we get this great kind of melodic theme played, um, boom, 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 against uh, red text in the background. It looked good. That that, that looks sharp. That's a sharp opening title credits.
0: Clean, sharp, and striking. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: there's something to that. Like, like we talked about opening credits on Escape from New York and Halloween. I mean, and I think this was the first time that he, you know, put his name above the title, too, of like— this is Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13. This is, I'm going to try and put my stamp on this in any way that I can. In, in multiple ways. And you're getting it from the score here. And then in the the role of editor, we have a editor by John T. Chance, which is actually John Wayne's character's name in Rio Bravo. So it's a total pseudonym because Carpenter edited this film as well.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: So score, editing... Written and directed by this one, like, he's fully involved
0: here. And you asked me, the budget really early are $100,000? So if you have hundred k and you have to pay for some talent, you're going to have to do most of the lifting on this by yourself. And so let's talk about that for a minute. Okay. This is a guy that, Carpenter, wasn't afraid to work really hard to make sure his project not only got in the starting blocks, but then across the finish line as well there's any number of hats that he was wearing that could hang up a film from score to edit to script to directorial, all casting. (laughs) Sure. And he seems to remove the propensity for failure by taking it on himself. That being said, what a huge task to take on to do all of those things. That's
1: a lot. There's Even someone like Martin Scorsese, I think, has only ever written, like, two of his own films, one of them being Goodfellas. He mostly just is primarily role as as director. He's not writing. He's not editing. He's got other people doing that, so he can be fully involved. But, like, it almost begs one to ask, like, when you're
0: this much involved, like, that's
1: taxing on someone. It is, and
0: so the script is done in eight eight days. (laughs) But let me give you something to compare this to. Yeah. Okay, so take Shemylan's efforts in... Lady in the Water. Okay. The big role that he plays, obviously written by and directed by and probably some other pieces too. Does he cameo in that one? I think he does. Isn't he? I think he's more than cameo. He's one of the main guys I think in think you right. He's I one I of the think, team. I think you're right. You he's know? got a pretty big... I think that might be his biggest role. Mm-hmm. That movie's a disaster. Yeah. With a big budget. So think about taking all of those roles that he wore and he produces, which are still fewer than the amount that Carpenter's going to take on. Mm-hmm. And he produces with a larger budget, a steaming pile of trash. Now you take this film, which doesn't try to be anything more than a B movie because it couldn't be. Mm-hmm. And I think it shows if not the genius, because that might be a little hard to decipher from this, but at least the creative diligence to try your best and mostly deliver on some semblance of a story that's not a complete clunker. Mm-hmm. Any one of those roles is just When you and I sit down to write, yeah. it's months yeah. and arguments mm-hmm. and butting heads in this problem and we solve this problem and it brings like that. Yep. So you have that. And maybe it's easier because it's just one person, him in the room. I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe not. So take that plus all the other things that go along with it. Yeah. And then to get it across the finish line in a way that is still pretty entertaining yeah. compared to a like effort in that in The Lady in the Water mm-hmm. that's a piece of trash, and I think you have to sort of like look at this man that among his fans is appreciated yeah. and respected, mm-hmm. but wildly disregarded as sort of like that Wes Craven era. 80s, late 70s to early 90s horror filmmaker that, yeah, for the lay, is just sort of like a guy. And to me, it's such a shame that this dude, Carpenter, mm-hmm. was never quite able to hit the Grand Slam. He oh. had a couple doubles off the wall, but he never quite hammered one out, did he? It's frustrating
1: for, for me being such a fan of him, too, because... You kind of wonder what, like, because I I truly think the thing is his masterpiece. It's a phenomenally made film, yeah. And it was like the first time he was given a, like a studio, Universal, and a decent budget to play with. And it's a great film on on the screen, and it just doesn't it doesn't deliver commercially. And you wonder if those opportunities were kind of taken away from him that like maybe he could have been given the reins to something like. Lethal Weapon yeah. or films like that. And right. he just kind of lost the opportunity to
0: play with that type of sandbox. Which makes you wonder if there was more to the, like I think there's a lot of buttock kissing that would need to go on in some places To You have to, that's part of the game. <laughs> and I think Carpenter's not about that. Oh no. That's what I'm saying. Like the original middle finger as the rebel on the back lot. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I can't find a casting agent I agree with. I guess I'll just do it myself.
1: It's interesting that you brought up Craven too, because I think Craven's legacy benefited from a a sec, post uh, career resurgence with Scream. Yep, it kind of got him going again, and the same thing happened with Shyamalan too, like Split kind of like propelled
0: him again, kind of. <laughs> well, we'll see. There's still hopefully some more tread on those tires. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but so that's fine for Craven and Shyamalan. Mm-hmm. Where's Carpenter's chance? I mean, we have Tales from the Crypt, and he had some hands in some other creative endeavors that weren't big screen, but little screen. And <sighs> was it supposed to be vampires? Was that going to be the thing? Oh, with James Woods. There's no way that was the one he thought, right? Yeah. I don't know. Well, that film's entertaining. It's it's
1: not at the level of some of these these other ones. Yeah, I don't know. I think yeah, he just missed his chance, and then just kind of he found his calling, kind of doing redoing getting into music again and, and composing the Lost Scores albums and scoring the new Halloween and kinda of getting involved with that reboot, which before that he kinda of wanted nothing to do with the franchise anymore. And it, it was kind of good to get him
0: on on to get the get the fan the fan backing with that. When they say his involvement, how involved like involved did they sit down in a room with him and say, tell us what makes Halloween tick. How involved is involved in your mind? Or what do you know about that?
1: Uh yeah. So Carpenter's prior involvement to that franchise before that was he'd get an after three they bailed. And anytime they used the music, he'd get a nice little a little check. And that's what he'd say. He's like, I'd always get get some money here and there whenever they made these films. And when H2O came around, they really tried to get him involved in he didn't, like as director. As director, yeah. It was like this return 20 years later, this reunion, and and he didn't he didn't want to play ball with with that. And I think it was finally, it was, it was uh, Danny McBride and David Gordon Green did go sit with him and told them their idea, and he's like, yeah, that's great. He's like, you got my blessing. Like, Make it your own. Make it original. But I think it was Jason Blum that kind of sat down with him, or maybe it was the, the collective, those three, that said, look, this is going to happen with or without you. We'd rather it happen with you. And he said, he's like, you know what? They're kind of right. Like maybe if I kind of get involved, we can kind of make this really good together again. And he's like, he's like, yeah, I'll agree to do the score. So I think that, I think that that's telling. He's like, and in, in the world of remakes and redos and I don't even know what you would call the new Halloween. Cause it's like, it's a reboot uncool sequel mm-hmm. that like kind of undoes everything and starts, starts afresh. This is happening with or without you. It would be, benefit everyone if you were involved to some capacity right and not just kind of sitting back and collecting a check so yeah i'm glad he did do i see him directing another film in the future most likely not but how old does he know God, he's got to be pushing like 78 77 yeah yeah i'd be done but i think it's it's nice to kind of see him in this space because he does have such a background in music through his father um, uh, taught music at Bowling Green University in Kentucky where he, where he grew up. So that's kind of like where he got a lot of the, his trade from. So I like that he's
0: back in that space. He And there's a space he works well in. Look, we've brought this up last week too. Mm-hmm. And so maybe this is the takeaway about this little rant that we're on. Okay. When you compare Sean Connery saying LXG was it for me... <laughs> And I'm pretty happy to be done doing whatever I want to do with the vast amounts of money I've made in this career. Mm -hmm. And John Carpenter leaves in a similar fashion. Sure. I'm happy. Mm -hmm. I'm making music and I'm happy. Then God bless both those guys. Yeah, There's a lifespan to everything, right? Oh, yeah. Quarterbacks. (laughs) Some of the crazy posts from some teachers on social media this week about deciding to write their will before they went back to work as a teacher that's just dramatic bullshit and if you're a teacher listening to that stop it secondly thirdly if you're happy and you want to get out who can begrudge anyone for that yeah i can't Mm -hmm. you and i selfishly can say we should get back in the director's chair yeah do you have any battles he probably had to fight from the director's chair yeah a lot yuck to him yeah, to him and his decision. But let's hear from
1: him a little bit and kind of see 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 what he how he kind of came about this idea.
0: Assault came out very freely in terms of what was its content. It, it, it was kind of basically a Rio Bravo type situation in the in the ghetto in Los Angeles, but it was also other things It had a little touch of Night of the Living Dead It had little touches of uh, kind of exploitation movies at the time. Much like Halloween, it was just kind of a free free type expression back then. I didn't know yet what I didn't know. I think later on, you, you find out. How was it working as far as, I, as, as I'm as reading here? You work for the first time with a
1: professional. The little sound at the end there is him lighting up a cigarette during this interview. Mm-hmm. Like, I love the guy. He just, you can talk to me, man. I'm going to smoke through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. But he says a lot of stuff in there that we kind of picked up on while watching, especially the the references to Night of the Living Dead. Dwayne Jones. Well, let's talk about our lead in this film, Austin Stoker, who plays uh, Ethan Bishop of uh, the Highway Patrol, whose first day out here in, I like how he starts in West Los Angeles.
0: Clean. Nicer
1: pretty, neighborhood. sunny. Because, yeah, we're going to the derelicts, <laughs> like, real quick. Mm-hmm. And we kind of drew a lot of parallels between his character and, yeah, Dwayne Jones, uh, Ben, in
0: Night of the Living Dead. Looks so much even so that when Dwayne Jones protects, they're coming for you, Barbara. Barbara, who is comatic most of Night of the Living Dead, same element here, Ethan Stoker, protecting the father of the girl who is Kim Richards from Housewives of Beverly Hills fame <laughs> yeah. today. Yeah, yeah. The little girl that gets gunned. Like, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah, that's big. But this man essentially on the lamb from the bad guys runs into a precinct looking for safety, mm-hmm. and he offers it unwieldingly mm-hmm. to the expense of everyone else in that precinct. Now, that's quite not quite Barbara with Dwayne Jones, but she does sort of bring... The zombies to this little, anyway, when he says there are ties to Night of the Living Dead, he's acknowledging, in fact, Mm -hmm. the black cop or the black hero protecting the nearly comatic and incapable victim. Mm -hmm. I think that's great.
1: They are both, in fact, because yeah, the father in this, like, I I always found that a very interesting part of this film is like once he comes in, he's like useless.
0: He's just laying on the couch, just like uh, Barbara yeah, in Night of *The yeah. Living Dead*, because
1: she she has the same thing. Yeah, as they're going about and everything's hitting the fan, they're kind of non participants up until the end. But this guy, even more so, he's just wrapped in his blanket there at the end. I always found found that interesting, but it's very
0: *Night of the Living Dead*. And they both are the most capable protagonists in the group. Definitely. Um, I don't know if Dwayne Jones really ever gets a good running mate, not the living dead. Austin is going to get a pretty good one with Napoleon Wilson. Such a great name. Such a great name. Yeah. Well, at first not, but then by the end, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Especially for a Western hero stuck in the middle of this action film. Like mm-hmm. You listen to his lines and see how he's sort of shaped. Got a smoke. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. kind of the quintessential Western anti-hero. This mm-hmm. is Val Kilmer and Tombstone. A little bit. Oh,
1: yeah, that, that's pretty good, right? Yeah, the film does start out though with this gunning down by the police of this this gang, which that sequence right there is uh was filmed in and uh, on the USC campus, and those oh, really? those are just USC students as the gang members. Why not? So, again, low budget. Uh, and that's the other interesting thing about Carpenter. So obviously went to that school, got his film degree there. And that was like the premier film school of that time. You know, you got George Lucas and Francis Ford Coppola coming out of that same kind of model of, of filmmaking. Is
0: that Friedkin too, or is he New York?
1: No, Friedkin. Oh, man, I'm, I knew you'd ask me that. No, I, no I he didn't. I don't think he, I don't he, think he, he is. Didn't is he didn't go to film school. I don't think yeah, he did. He cut his teeth a, a different way. But those guys, uh, George Lucas is making American Graffiti. Francis Ford Coppola is making The Godfather. So like, Carpenter's trying to find his niche into kind of that world. And you have to do it here. Low budget, 100K. I think this is, again, we talked about with Escape from New York. This is this is a pretty high concept film idea with next to no money to play around with. You know what I mean?
0: I'd love to be in those classes with those three minds in there. Think about the legacy that they leave behind mm-hmm. in three pretty specific genres if you want to do it horror science fiction and and mafia or mobster mm. yep to be in those classes if they were all together and i don't know if they were probably, actually, probably not but around the same time mm-hmm. whatever usc had or had or, or was working on it was working at that time yeah whatever their overriding mission statement was they were churning out a creative element that essentially shaped everything in Hollywood that is moving today Mm
1: -hmm. that's awesome you know that's that'd be the time to be alive to like like be making movies because it's almost like there's no rules in this in the sandbox uh you know whereas like now you have to meet so many different quotas and it can't be this it can't be that here and, and and it's totally reflective of the times this that this period of Hollywood that we love the French Connection, Deliverance era of almost, I like how he said exploitation because that's kind of what this film is, but that's what a lot of those films were, exploiting violence, exploiting, uh, you know, certain minorities, um, whether in hero or villain roles or, you know, there's the, the, the like like the prison type movies. This kind of feels like almost like a lot of that, but it feels like Carpenter was a big Howard Hawks guy growing up, The the, the thing from another world. Uh, Real Bravo, so right, the Western ties in this are
0: extraordinarily evident. Okay, I love that you used Hawks as this, because mm-hmm. those two films are this film and The Thing. Mm-hmm. Real Bravo and The Thing from Another World are The Thing and this film. Mm-hmm. Add to that the post-Nichols-Bogdanovich oh, yeah. era of antihero trying to find out a new more grittier and urban hero Mm -hmm. um, and the manifestations of those. Like if you want to be frank about it, Star Wars is a Western Mm -hmm. in space. It is again with ties to Ford Kurosawa. Kurosawa. Mm -hmm. So these guys are not afraid to acknowledge what got them to where they are with their love of film, mm-hmm. but are creative enough to find a new way to execute on those ideas. Very well said. And man, you're mm-hmm. getting really good stuff mm-hmm. and you can make the case that with those three names, mm-hmm. not Bogdanovich, Nichols and Kurosawa, but Carpenter, Coppola and Lucas yeah. that they're, <laughs> I mean, you're going to be hard pressed to find a greater legacy left behind genre wise than those three names. Period. Yeah. Hitchcock might come into mind with maybe thriller Mm-hmm. I mean, who's that guy today? Nolan. I mean, Shamilan's auteur, but some of his stuff <laughs> no. is so bad you can't do that. I mean, who else? Him, Soderbergh, Fincher. maybe. Yeah, right. And those guys are both mostly, mostly both thrillers. Yeah. You yeah, know, you're right. It's it's not it's not as
1: commonplace as it was back then. But again, that that type of rebels on the backlot mentality of this kind of this Tarantino, kind of, maybe I don't know. Yeah, this really sounds yeah, maybe. Ooh. Yeah. You. uh, foreshadowing <laughs> no but uh this literally feels like a film okay we're giving you 100k to play with write me the script in a week okay and he writes it in the time he does they're filming in los this is a 20-day shoot in los angeles that's like a run gun type of type of filmmaking like really quick like we're we not we got two takes nail it guys because yeah, we're not gonna yeah, yeah dick n- around n- nail it good and i like these Establishing shots around Los Angeles to really kind of set. And Matt, what did you think of the the, the kind of clock at the at, at the bottom? Because once the guy comes into the thing, they keep saying, "Well, this guy came in 30 minutes ago," and I was like, "Well, this is kind of like high noon. This is kind of taking place in real time here in like a real
0: time frame." That's exactly what I thought. It was mm-hmm. high noon. Yeah. And as the support staff around you flees or is killed, it felt like high noon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difference obviously being in that film is like why Gary Cooper just doesn't kick Grace Kelly's ass to the curb in that movie until I'm going back with uh um Katie uh Gerardo. And Katie Gerardo, Yep. Who married Ernest Borgnine, by the way. Mm-hmm. It is will never be lost on me. But regardless, <laughs> he does have a ticking clock working against him. They're mm-hmm. closing in. He's way outgunned, not only by ammunition, but by talent. Mm-hmm. And one by one, we're moving closer to the bottom of the ninth. And, man, are we ready for baseball on Thursday or what? Yeah, Dude, why, why not? <sighs> bring it on. Uh, so, yeah, again, high noon. Well said. Perfect. I yeah, agree with you.
1: Really good. Uh, let's kind of catch the plot up to kind of where we're at here. So there's the, yeah this this opening gang scene where they're gunned down. And then the gang established uh, Street Thunder makes, like, a blood oath. Looks like they cut themselves a little too deep, too. It's like, this blooded bowl is full of blood. But a blood oath to, like, take down— the police and anyone that gets in their way. So they like, I always found that scene very troubling when the guy just has like that, like automatic rifle out the window and he's just kind of like picking people out. And you're like, man, is he going to just blow one of these people away? And it's not until they like pass this ice cream truck thing. And like, okay, so let's get into that sequence here and we'll just kind of let this lead in. Can I get an ice
0: cream? It's late, sweetheart. I'm closed. Music music's still playing. Please, can I get an ice cream?
1: What flavor?
0: little twist.
1: So there's a lot going on in that scene. It's established, I think, really well with this car going up and down. And this is the, the gang, which it's... White, Asian, African-American, Chicano, like, uh, like Latin American, Hispanic, like it's very well-rounded gang, but they're just going up looking for any type of target to start something with. And I like how she, she pulls up to the thing and he's looking out the, and I like how the music cuts out and you're just kind of waiting for like the tension to, to release again. And you kind of let your guard down because then he's like, I will give you this
0: ice cream, this vanilla twist that you want. But then it happens to be plain old vanilla. Customer service is so key in life. <laughs> yep. Had he just given her the right flavor of ice cream, our little eleven-year-old housewife of Beverly Hills would still be around in this film. I can't believe this happens. This is me either. This is something else. Or you're going to ask me later what was the moment? This is the moment. This is, is yeah. Is, this, there's no way. Yeah. So, I guess the the Caucasian element in the gang of Street Thunder. Of, seems Frank be, Doubleday from Escape from New York. Romero. Romero. <laughs> we don't, whatever. Okay. Um,
1: you touch me, he dies.
0: <laughs> yeah. Guns are down in cold blood. Like, I, I literally looked at you and went, what? Did that just happen? We've talked about it a little bit, right? The no-nos. This is. It's not quite there. Yeah. Because she's oldest, older, aged enough to where it's not, you can't get the audience back because you just killed a baby. But damn, it's not far from it. What is she, 11? Eight, nine? Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe 10 li- yeah. maybe 10. Some, maybe okay, 10 yeah. Are, yeah. Old enough to still be very sympathetic. Or I'm sorry, young enough to still be th- sympathetic and maybe old enough to buy off the, oh my gosh, they just wiped out a child, but barely. And to Carpenter and the living embodiment of the middle finger to what the rules are, mm-hmm. inspired by Bogdanovich, and we can go back. Yeah. And creating a really hateable villain. Sure. And a cause for dad to freak out and want to do what he does to run to the precinct after he seeks his revenge. Well,
1: it's what sets the the rest of the fil- events in motion.
0: Yeah. Oh, and just wrong place, wrong time. Well, that
1: shot of the, the dad like getting out of the phone booth and he sees her on the ground then the ice cream man there. Yeah, that's 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 pretty troubling.
0: So we've kind of talked all around it. Essentially what happens, the little girl buys the ice cream cone, goes back because he gets the wrong flavor. <clears throat> At this time, the street's sort of been cased by this carload of the four warlords of the different um, ethnic groups of Street Thunder. And Frank Doubleday, the Caucasian element, just steps out and guns down the ice cream truck driver after he kills the little girl. And she's sitting there holding her ice cream cone, looking at it, and he just stone cold caps her. Mm -hmm. Blood splatters, she goes down, then they kill... The uh, ice cream truck driver. Yeah, but not before the ice cream truck driver can warn the dad of the little girl who has now seen her bite the dust, or inform the dad of the little girl who's just died that there's a gun underneath the like in the car dash. Mm-hmm. So dad's furious, gets the car and gets the gun and is after the bad guys to make those bastards pay. Mm-hmm. But the most important, okay, the blah blah blah. Yeah, the most important all that is. They doing the they doing the little girl. Yeah, it's it's a showstopper.
1: Yeah, and I think I think yeah the the people said like we're gonna give this an X rating unless you cut that scene. But as I, this was pretty commonplace, I think last house and the Less, last house on the left did the same thing too, where they said you got to cut these scenes, you can't release the movie like this. So they and the director said, okay, we'll cut them, and then they leave them in there and then ship it to the distributors, and then once it's there, there's the, back then there was nothing they could do about it at right. that point. It had an R rating on the poster, but it still had these scenes that they were told to cut. There was no MPAA that was like this enforcing agency like they are today. Like now you usually have to submit your film so many times to get it passed or otherwise it'll
0: get the NC-17 and that's just the kiss of death. Well, we go back to the Hayes Code God and like broadcast or episode two or three. I might have been the Serenity. I forget. We did that early on. We broke down. Double Indemnity. Double Indemnity. There you go. Mm -hmm. Right. That was early. Yep. That's gone, mm-hmm. but by less than 10 years. So we're still kind of exploring how far we can push it. And sometimes that exploration mm-hmm. leads to rather shocking moments. Sure. And this is definitely one of them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It could have just killed the ice cream truck driver and it would have been just fine. Mm-hmm. But to do in that, because they could have killed the dad, there's any number of ways know, he could have I go, know, but I know. to him having the balls to do it, mm-hmm. you and I have seen a lot of film and that was... yeah a pump the brakes moment for me with a lot of film in my background.
1: Sure. So juxtaposed with this, we already established Austin Stoker, Ethan Bishop, who's going to got to stay at this precinct as they're moving to a different area. This kind of, this no one lives in this neighborhood. So that doesn't really, the station doesn't need to be there anymore.
0: Kind of just the watchdog until the move's done. Exactly.
1: Uh, and then Charles ciphers and that green corduroy jacket, uh, is in the middle of transporting these three prisoners to another uh, maximum security facility, awaiting their inevitable death penalty uh, date. And we have, yeah, Napoleon Wilson, Darwin Justin, and Tony Burton. <laughs> I've been waiting I was waiting for Tony Burton to just say, "He's a southpaw." I don't want you messing with no southpaws.
0: Who's named Tony? <laughs> yeah, in all of the Rocky stuff. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: who arguably we said probably had the best post-career after this. film.
0: <laughs> I think it's kind of unquestioned. You, yeah. Yeah. Tony Burton has had a pretty nice career in, in Hollywood that most of you don't know because he's been training the greatest fighter of all time, mm-hmm. master of disaster, Apollo Creed. Yep. Um, but he's got quite a film legacy. Definitely. Anyway, so yeah, that's the pieces that are in here that are on the transport bus that has to make an unexpected stop at the about-to-be-deserted Real Bravo saloon. I mean, precinct. It looks like a saloon. Even with the... Like Jesse, you know what I realized when yeah. you said that? Yeah. The doors are even the double-swinging doors are. in the saloon. Mm-hmm. So the, the, one the, of the prisoners is sick, right? The archways. Yeah. Like, just kind of like yeah, the, the the way it's laid wooden, out. Wooden, wood, 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 wooden. Mm-hmm. The bar winch, essentially, that kind of runs things. <laughs> no, winch. right? I mean... They kind of tart her up a little bit. And I don't mean Nancy Loomis, the other gal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's her name? Um, Lori Zimmer. There you go, Lori Zimmer. And tough. Yeah. As nails. Yeah, she takes that bullet like a champ. I'd be screaming my head off. What's the first thing she offers Austin Stoker? Coffee. A drink. Yep. Right? I mean, this is good for John Carpenter to find a way to do a Western like this. Well, that
1: scene in in 2, he's like, I I, I came in here, and he's like, and I caught something in the... In the wood here, like that scene plays out like the new sheriff who's come into town and Mm -hmm. he's going to clean things up, but he's given this kind of crap detail that ends up being a lot more than he bargained for.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, okay, and to that, let's take it one step further. Usually when the sheriff comes into town, he has to reclaim the turf Mm -hmm. from the antagonizing element that has usually some... Baron of some sorts, cattle, train, some sort of baron that wants the land themselves. Mm -hmm. Look, man, this is a turf war. Yeah. Essentially, at the end of the film, it's the same premise. Yep. I want to know what he carved in the desk. I do, too. Yeah. She does say it's pretty advanced for a young man. Pretty
1: advanced for a young man. Maybe it was a four-letter word. It could have been. Oh, no. Yeah. So the transport bus that has the sick passenger they have to make this unscheduled stop, and this is kind of when it all hits the fan. They arrive to kind of you know wait for help, of a doctor, and that's not coming. As this man who's gunned down Frank Doubleday with the gang in tow, following him, just bursts in, non-verbal, almost comatose already. And it's at that moment when just like everything like just starts hitting the fan.
0: He didn't fall. He was shot. What? I couldn't tell if he was still alive.
1: But there wasn't any sound. Silencers.
0: They're using silencers.
1: They're in those trees over there. Carpenter uses a static shot, I think, better than most filmmakers. Like, usually, just like the camera on a tripod shooting a shot is just like kind of filler. But like whenever he does it I always feel like he's he's bringing the environment in as one of the characters like the the precinct here it becomes not only the, like the environment but it, it starts to embody like the mystery out there like hiding in the trees and there's that shot there I always love it of the, those guys are just kind of standing still mm-hmm. like as the guy goes into the into the station like almost like mannequins mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh <laughs> yeah you, you you said too like man this is even like I, we talked about night living dead but they're they're almost, the the gang's almost zombie like in their delivery they don't speak the way they move the way they go about they're like they're driven by one purpose night living dead is deep flesh and this it's to get in here and kill this man and we don't care if we're going down either
0: kind of a mob mentality with mm. one singular thought that they all share yep and the the gang is essentially a herd of zombies yep that probably are just as equally bloodthirsty. Yeah, you know when you were playing the sound from Stoker there. If you close your eyes and just remove the the visceral image of him, it even sounds like Dwayne Jones. Mm-hmm. They even have the same sort of pantameter to their to their delivery, the rhythm. Yeah, it's awesome. Mm-hmm. Two really great. Like Dwayne Jones is great. Uh, Ben
1: Dwayne Jones, that's probably one of the, like, I would probably put him in my top five, like, horror protagonists of all time. Yeah. He's a pretty fantastic character. Yeah. And that's just George Romero. Just, he's like, he's like, it wasn't about race or anything. He's like, I Dwayne Jones was the best man actor for that role. Yep. And we
0: got to talk about that movie one of these days, too, because that's a, that, that film's a loaded canon of subtext. We talked earlier about some of the interesting casting decisions and how that branched out. So I didn't know this, Mm -hmm. but we've spoken a little bit on the podcast about a friend of ours, Larry, Mm -hmm. uh, rest his soul. I had no idea and had had seen the film. Mm -hmm. Larry's kind of crowning moment in film is a movie called Horror High. 1973, essentially Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from a high school kid's point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, Austin Stoker is kind of the lead in that film as well. Mm-hmm. Plays like the cop, the investigating guy. Yeah, so when he brought up Horror High to him like that's weird, what are you talking about? And then yeah, that's because he's in it.
1: I remember when I brought up Horror High like you you and I were just driving and he's like, "Yeah, Larry made this movie Horror High and I I had Horror High in this collection of like just like uh like B horror films." And you said, "You have seen horror?" And I think my response to you was, "Yeah, Mister Mumps." And I think you about like almost you almost like crashed the car because you couldn't believe I had like seen this movie.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't. We were literally on a meeting to the guy that wrote the script about Mister Mumps. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah,
1: crazy. To that. Yeah, to him. Yeah, to him. excellent. But yeah, yeah, between yeah Tony Burn and then we have Nancy Loomis in here who would fo- her and Charles Cyphers would follow up as dad and and daughter and. Carpenters Halloween, uh, the the following uh, two years later, but yeah, a lot of interesting uh, casting choices in here. But once these guys start kind of surrounding the the, the station here, and they they start getting in, it's not until uh, they have to let the the guys out—Darwin, Justin, and Tony Burton—out to like, man, we need we need some help in here. And then you get this. I always really like this sequence here.
0: Give me a gun! They're coming down the hall.
1: throws him this shotgun and like takes out like four of them. And like the look on Stoker's face is just like, whoa, like what did I just like let out of the cage? Like, cause this guy, Napoleon Wilson has this era aura of reputation. They're talking about him. Like one of these old West baddies, like that ain't him. Like, are you serious? Like he's got this, he's done so much bad and we don't know exactly what he's done. But, uh, yeah, it almost kind of a lot like those old West baddies leave that, your leave and Cleefs.
0: Oh, well said. Yeah. That question is even posed to Napoleon Wilson. Why'd you kill those men by Charles Cyphers on the transport bus to mm-hmm. ultimately the prison where they're going to meet the death penalty that would that they never get to. And he doesn't give an answer. He says, Charles Cypher says, you're not a madman or whatever the hell it is. And. Like, basically saying you don't seem like you're hell-bent on destroying just innocent people. And then as we watch the movie unfold, there is actually a very clear moral compass in Napoleon Wilson. And he does have some respect that he offers for traditional authority and honor and, in a weird way, even manners. Mm-hmm. So, am I talking about a Western hero there? Maybe. Those sound like Western hero traits. Maybe just misbegotten or misunderstood. I love, though, that we never get the backstory on <clears throat> Napoleon Wilson. Yeah, yeah. When this movie ended, mm-hmm. I got to tell you, I think he might be one of my favorite characters in any Carpenter film. I thought he was a really great character. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And they give him some stupid lines, mostly because the script was written in eight days. And there's, there's a couple points where we t- kind of laughed when he doesn't really give Tony Burton a, the back and forth that Tony Burton's trying to offer him with um, the planned escape that fails. Well, but, even
1: then, then later, two you asked me, like, what about uh, Napoleon and uh, Laurie Zimmer? Do you think there are any sparks flying there? I was like, I don't know, I guess. <laughs> like, I can't even tell, like, like what the what is trying to do. Mm-hmm. But again, speaking of Carpenter and his just honesty of who he is, he said it was written in seven to eight days and it totally shows.
0: <laughs> He's a good character though. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Great. Not perfect. With a rewrite and some time could be sure stellar. And some budget. Well, that would help too. Yeah. You. Yeah.
1: And so no, I'm 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 totally with you there. Like I like his I like the the forces of evil and the forces of good that have to join up for a joint cause, which in this is just survival. Right. It's not um got a put one person on a pestle over the other it's just like we literally have to work together in order to get out of this situation so yeah I, I find that i find that very interesting and as they come in and yeah they just blow away like 25 of these guys out, out of the windows here again they're just i i love that you said zombie because it's exactly what it's like this is the dead trying to get into this house right here
0: it also poses the question in every zombie movie that the protagonist has to come to Mm -hmm. do I barricade myself in as long as I can and hold them off or hope to hold them off Mm -hmm. or do I make a break for it and try to outrun them? Yeah. It's the question that Tony Burton's going to try to answer a few times in this film. And it's also posed for the protagonists that remain. Yeah. There's just so many gang members that keep coming.
1: And, and not a lot of outs. I mean, this is a film today, I think, that'd be solved with just a cell phone call to get some help. But, yeah. like, here, yeah. we're on this derelict street that, like, is the surrounding houses are all condemned and boarded up. Uh, the nearest uh, houses are, like, 700 feet away. The phone lines are literally out, so we can't even call out. No one's hearing the guns because they have silencers on them. The cops driving by can't find anything and like, oh, they're just moving boxes over there. So that's why we're not really seeing anything. Like, there's no way for them to get out until they like if we go through the manhole cover and you get into a car, hotwire it, and then just like go get help. Go get help. Which I wonder if Tony Burton would even bring the help or if he'd just take off, kind of kind of a situation.
0: Yeah, it's a good question.
1: But they play potatoes too,
0: <laughs> to to decide who's going to go out. <laughs> yeah, that was weird, wasn't it? I don't think those two guys would really play potatoes. First of all, I don't even know what potatoes was until I'd seen this film. Yeah. And secondly, I'm never playing potatoes with you. Don't yeah. ask me. We're flipping a coin. <laughs> okay. 50-50 <laughs> chance. I'll yeah. take it. Yeah.
1: But yeah, and then see, he's made mince me just by... This guy does a Michael Myers on him and he's hiding in the back seat and just and shoots him in the head and he crashes. So there's, they're out is like literally out.
0: Their escape vehicle shot, they're down to about, what, three bullets? Three
1: bullets, yeah. Again, just like dwindling down. Yeah, kudos to Carpenter for increasing the stakes. You got no gunfire. We have no way out. There's still a bunch of these guys. And it literally gets to the point where like, well, we're essentially going to have to let these guys in and into almost like a little trap. This kind of like hallway barricade and we have these cases of this this flammable these flammable tanks here. You know, if if with one of these three shots, uh, we could hit that, maybe we could take out a, a, a large uh, assortment of these guys. If it comes to that, which it it totally comes to that, it's like the very next sequence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is kind of like just like the final the final stand here in this in this hallway. And you know, for the low budgetness of of it, I think it's handled very well with you know these guys these almost like these ants just like attacking this sign here like almost like like the scene in wild bunch where they're devouring that that scorpion mm-hmm. yeah it's a gr- that's a great sequence there and then bullet 1 misses bullet 2 misses bullet 3 hits it and then if this movie had any more budget this scene would probably have been so much more gruesome cuz th- there would be body parts everywhere but everyone's faces are all just like charred sure, right. it's, it was pretty that was pretty gross but finally some people Come in and say like, "Oh my gosh!" And you, you, you uh, commented on that. Uh, how they're kind of revealed amidst the smoke, and like the smoke clears, and then you like kind of see them like come to. Like that's pretty good. Like,
0: yeah. So finally, the big explosion is enough to alert the authorities. Like maybe something's going on. That was also really well done. So because this precinct is in isolation. The criminals would prefer to keep it in isolation. Mm -hmm. So you use silencers on the guns to not alert the neighborhood folk that there's something going on. And then you dispose of the dead so that there's no evidence laying around. Sure. And you can see when the group inside Precinct 13 starts to come to the realization no one's coming, how well organized Street Thunder is, which is sort of silly for a multicultural street gang that expanses thousands of members. Yeah. But there's manpower enough to take the bodies that are laying in the street or in the courtyard and get rid of them to keep this looking as normal as it can. Because you know what a precinct looks like from 200 yards with shot out windows? Precinct. Yeah. So they're hidden in in plain sight perfectly well. Mm -hmm. And the manpower to remove the collateral damage, to not alert the authorities, to me also led into the notion that this was 6,000 people against five. Yeah. It's just really, really well-crafted. And you do that with no budget in a short amount of time uh, without having to see these people dragging bodies and buses and, and mm-hmm. things out of the line of sight. Exactly. Um, I thought that was really, really smart. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's almost like when you when you have so much less, you just you have to kind of be a little more creative with how you do certain things or how or how you present them. And like I said, I was like, this is like filmmaking one oh one because this is the first time Carpenter used uh, a Panavision camera, which is the natural two thirty-five aspect ratio. So you get in a full widescreen. When you use a widescreen camera, it makes the film look bigger than it actually is. Sure. And especially here where they don't have a lot of room and stuff to play with, like he'd use that camera again for most of his films and it gives that low budgetness. Like it elevates it like even that much, but he knows how to use it and place that camera. Well, too, not everyone can just do that.
0: (laughs) You brought it up earlier and the whole point of the cask is single locations. Yeah. The trick with single locations is can you find enough interest in the location to keep the story going? Mm -hmm. The answer in this movie is pretty simple and that's, have plenty of bad guys so that we can just keep killing people in this location in a movie like maybe um oh wreck mm. I think that played there too in sort oh, of the def- same regard definitely mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you don't have elaborate places to run to you can't go from amusement park to cave dwelling it's like <laughs> this room that room and this hallway. And they do a really good job in this film of making it through the wide angle camera and through the events that happen, making that location seem bigger than it is. Mm -hmm. Because essentially, we really are in a saloon. And I mean that it's a bathroom and two offices and like two cells. Yeah, that never, it didn't dawn on me with the doors until you mentioned that. It's totally exactly what it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, again, filmmaking 101, because we've got $100,000, we can't have expensive shoot shooting spots, I like this place right here. Yeah. Go for it. This
1: fits what we need. Yeah. And there's enough to play around with here. In a film that's 90 minutes, Like that's like the perfect length for
0: something like this. You need a couple corners to take cover. You need a couple different like places to duck under, and maybe inside that single location, a room or two. Mm-hmm. That's basically what you get. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So the smoke clears. The cops
1: finally come to give them some... Assistance, But it's, it's it looks like they've kind of done away with the rest of this gang here in this hallway. They're just all just bodies galore. So they all kind of go out into the into the to, to the surface here. And I like this moment between Ethan Bishop and uh, and Napoleon Wilson here because they want to chain him back up, get him back in the cell, get him back on the bus to get him where he needs to be. I doubt he's going to kind of get any type of pardon for helping out here because it sounds like what he did before it was a whole lot worse. So he still has to pay for his crimes. But Stoker wants to walk. They want to walk. He wants to walk out with him as equals. You helped me. We both needed each other here. And they kind of see each other for what what they both represent and what both their goals were. And as soon as he walks up those stairs, they're going to put him in chains and put him in the back of a car. But for that one moment, they get to kind of, he gets to kind of have that freedom with him. And I like that. That's totally old West.
0: And that's John Ford to a T. Right. I don't need any more story. I don't care if he gets away with it. Like It's the camaraderie of friendship. Yeah that so much of the Western genre is based on. Like, my skin's more important than yours, and our friendship is the most invaluable resource because this land is so harsh. It's the one of the civilizing elements among us, and I think that's what you get. If you have authority figure and rebel teaming up, there has to be something to connect them together. And in this film, it's the respect and honor among thieves in a certain extent that they offer each other. And I will say Napoleon Wilson early on in the film recognizes how many times Stoker has saved him. Mm-hmm. He's like, you've already saved me twice. I'm not really sure why you would do that because yep. most people are ready to put me in the chair. And then the rest of the film is Napoleon trying to repay him back. And I think delivers in spades. And the moment when nondescript cop shows up after the precinct has been rescued by the authorities and they try to chain up Napoleon Wilson to put him back on the transport bus like you said yeah Stoker says no 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 get your hands off of him Mm -hmm. and then says I'd be honored to walk out of here with you yeah and what is Napoleon Wilson's line I know you would be yep it's good it's great it's a good way to get out of here and the movie's over. <laughs> Credits. Let's, yeah. get, let's
1: go. Uh, a couple things first. So the title of the film is Assault on Precinct 13, but this was a flub by the distributor. So Carpenter's original script for this was the Anderson Alamo, which, mm. Western, again. Uh, but the distributors wanted to be more flashy for overseas distribution and whatnot. So they changed it to Assault on Precinct 13, but in the film, it's Division 13, Precinct 9. So that's not even right, but it's a great title. But Mm -hmm. like, talk about, like, I don't think people understand, like, when you make a film, you like, there's so many hands involved in the process, whether it's the filmmaker making and the studio distributing, like, Things change for the stupidest reasons and like literally something is that that's not, it's an inaccuracy to the film because mm-hmm. there
0: is no Precinct 13,
1: but that's a pretty good title for this film.
0: Do you like that better than Anderson Alamo? I think so. Yeah. Okay.
1: I don't need to be obviously told that you are trying to make a Western, but then when you watch this and kind of see all the tones that it shares with that genre, I like that a lot better.
0: Well, and there's a difference between assault on Precinct 11 Versus or assault on precinct seven, yeah, versus seven versus 13.
1: Yeah, it just sounds 13's a
0: better number, it's a
1: better number on the top, Friday the 13th, Yeah. Right. Exactly. And this is probably the most important thing that happened from this film. So, uh, distribution rights here in the States, uh, the film was acquired by Irwin Yablons. Irwin Yablons mm-hmm. was, uh, uh, part of Compass International and helped get, uh, Halloween off off the ground. That was that was his idea. Doesn't really. have some
0: ties to the Pink Panther previously too. Uh, maybe I don't know. I'll look into that. Yeah, maybe. But yeah, yeah. There's this, there's his name right there. Yeah. So and
1: the Halloween was his idea. He was like he's like I want to set this thing the baby with babysitters getting killed and we'll set it on Halloween and he's like well the Carpenter made this assault. He's like I'm going to him first and then British distribution rights were handled by a company. Um, I think it's called British Film Rights. And the distributor there, his name was Michael Myers. So they, they decided to name that character after the guy that helped get this film over there because this film was kind of a disaster in the States. It didn't really had a tepid reaction. Oh over there it was pretty decent hit for uh European audiences. They really they really uh stuck to it. So
0: did it make its money back at the box office? Oh, def- definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I am stateside before it went international. Mm,
1: I don't know. Okay. I don't know box office tracking numbers like in the seventies and like, it, I don't know how like reliable they are because you have so many little theaters playing right. films like this. So right. I don't know if you're getting as accurate as you do today, but that's probably the most important thing that came from this film was it literally laid the groundwork for what was to come. Like you said, a genre defining film yeah. for, for, for horror. So right, uh, Matt, what was your favorite tasting note? Uh, sequence of Assault on Precinct 13.
0: I actually really did like Tony Burton. I wanted him to be good in this film. Mm. And I think he got what was coming to him. As you said, his motives are pretty questionable as he tries to flee a couple times and maybe isn't the most dedicated warrior of the cause. But I think aside from that stupid potatoes bit, (laughs) I think he really does showcase his acting chops in this. I mean, it obviously... Um, there's some other things we could do, They're the obvious ones, but like watching him struggle with what's right and wrong, I thought when he was in those scenes, he kind of stole the movie. Sure. Um This is the same year as Rocky's nineteen seventy-six, so close second mm-hmm. is the end between Stoker and uh Wilson when they leave.
1: Mine's that 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 uh that gun gun gunfight once they let them out of the once they let them out of the, the jail cells and then they have to um kind of team up here, it's chaotic. You know, you gotta get the he's gotta give them the shotgun and then Lori Zimmers with her shot up arm, but she's still take she's like down the hall and she's taking out a couple of these guys and then Stoker and Tony Burton at the door. You know, they're they're doing as as best as they can to, you know, take these people out. But I, I think for hundred K for what this film is for how limited they are in some ways. I think that's a pretty decent little action bit. Man, those guys just get blown out of the window with those shotgun blasts. One by one by one. One by one by one. So I think you you already set it up so well, but... Oh, my God. It has to be. This isn't just an oh, my God for this film. This is like an oh, my God, like, of this entire Rice Mile catalog. (laughs) Yeah, like you said, there's...
0: If we were to do most shocking moments in film, yeah, I don't just mean on Rye, like in film, yeah, that's this moment's top ten ever. Like yeah. Hereditary, certainly in there. Yeah, that comes out of nowhere. A couple other ones, but this this is in there.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, killing pets, which probably happens a lot more frequently, but the, like that's such a no no too. Like that 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 turns that turns me off a lot. Yeah. Like, yeah, especially tonally with what you're going for, and then yeah, this is a big one, and you don't see this frequently at all, but. Yeah, it's shocking, but it sets the film in motion, and it totally sets the tone with this. These are just shades. This is just a gang that has no emotion, who's just moving from scene to scene, and they're laying waste to everything and anything in their way. So I think that really sets the the, the tone there. Uh, yeah, Kim Richards. I, I told you her sister's Kyle Richards, and she plays little Lindsay Wallace and Lindsay in uh, in Halloween. So.
0: And then you said it had ties to the Hiltons as a grown up. I know, so no, know
1: This one, Kim Richards right. is married I to some family member of the Hiltons. Yeah, because she's like aunt to yeah Paris Hill That whole collective of of people. But hey, when you live in that town, man. I mean,
0: who would have thunk it? <laughs> who would have thunk it? It all started with an ice cream cone.
1: When okay, so uh, who's the master distiller on this on this film?
0: <sighs> I. I'll let you go first because I imagine this is so obvious, but go ahead. You go first.
1: I mean, it kind of it kind of has to be John Carpenter, yeah. I think what he showed pulling off four roles here, twenty day shoot, hundred k, he pulled off like something. Like people, given that budget, like your film usually turns into like a pretty schlocky drive-in film, and I I don't think this necessarily fits that category.
0: There's a level of contrarianism in this podcast sometimes that I offer just to sort of incite interest this is not the time to do that okay. i'm not going to tell you it's you know laurie or charles cipher i i'm not going to do that it's <laughs> it's it's john carpenter without question without question so we have rock
1: gut well call single barrel and top shelf let, let me go first with this one yep, do. make no mistake this is a john carpenter flick and he's my favorite filmmaker just based on like how he makes makes his films but like this is like a second tier carpenter flick and that's and it's mm-hmm. obvious that that's what it is but the seedlings that you see here his mastery of a limited budget high concept idea cl- backed into a corner closing a tight space like that's when like his films get really really like literally think Laurie in the closet in Halloween that's backing the film into a corner and it's that's where it works best. That's where his films work best. Yeah. Think of the thing when they have to light up the the the, the camp and like no one's getting out of here, but we got to find this thing. Like that's when the film like reaches its fever pitch. Snake Bliskin, same thing. Mm-hmm. He works well in that space, and you get the shreds of his like his scoring here. This film, this larger than life score, the use of the panavision. Yeah, I think you see the ceilings of where you would see him totally take off with Halloween. Yeah. It's, uh, oh, I didn't even rate it. It's probably like a single barrel minus for me. It's it's not in the upper echelons of his masterpieces, but it's an entertaining little 90 minutes. And I think more so than anything, I think there's a lot to learn from, from aspiring filmmakers watching this.
0: It's tough sometimes to give ratings to films not based on the sum total of the artist's work. And... That is also something you don't purposely not want to consider because if A didn't happen, then B couldn't have happened, and then we wouldn't have gotten C. All that being said, this is a B movie, mm-hmm. and it's not B movie. Well, I mean, it's B movie because there's not a ton of talent. It's not a it's it's a B movie because there's not a lot of money. It's B movie because. You have a relatively young director with limited resources, as he said in the sound you played. If I had known then or if I didn't know then what I still don't know now or whatever that line was. Basically like admitting I was an ingenue on set. I didn't know what the hell was going on. Yeah,
1: I think he said, yeah, you don't, I didn't know what I didn't know.
0: Okay, right. Mm-hmm. Fair, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a script that's usable, but I wouldn't say stellar in eight days. That's pretty monumental feat. Pretty wooden dialogue for the most part. <laughs> right. But if this doesn't happen, yeah. And there isn't the moments in there, like the girl with the ice cream or the shootout at the beginning, or not even at the beginning, when the the gang members are besieging mm-hmm. Precinct thirteen or the moment of camaraderie at the end of the film. If that's not in there and people don't recognize that, then you never get the rest of what John Carpenter was for good and bad. Yeah. It's the highest rated call i think i can give okay (laughs)
1: excellent
0: (laughs) for like a b movie is probably in my opinion b movies unless it's just so like night of the living dead Mm -hmm. and this isn't that yeah um a really solid call in a movie that probably has no business being out of well sure oh and i totally i totally agree budget-wise yeah
1: there's there's things to definitely like about it, but yeah, you're right. The sum total, if this if this is just a total disaster, like Erwin Yablons doesn't go to John Carpenter to make a film about babysitters being killed, he's going to the next guy. Mm-hmm. That film doesn't happen, then the thing doesn't happen, <laughs> and and all all the things. For Big of,
0: Trouble or uh, Christine or The Fog. We yeah, can keep going.
1: Yeah, none, uh, they live. <laughs> it's okay, like a lot of those films. Yeah, like his career probably takes a different trajectory and all the more for because of how important those films are to me. Yeah, this assaults, like, the first step. Like, Dark Star came before this, and that's that's a weird movie with beach balls, the alien. And have you seen Dark Star? Yeah. Dan O'Bannon? Uh, this is kind of, I think, where Carpenter's career started, and and you can tell, like, this is a great starting point.
0: So if Dan O'Bannon and Dark Star are important to Alien, mm-hmm. which they are, yep. then <laughs> John Carpenter and Precinct are important to... Anything having to do with horror from 1980 to today, fair, right? Yep. Okay, I agree. Yeah,
1: because you don't get you don't get the torture porn without the slasher boom, right? You don't get found footage without the slasher, boom. like you don't get those without that, right? And not that Halloween was the first, because Black Christmas and Texas were years prior, and Psycho and Peeping Tom were before that. And Bava, that's all before that, but he blew it up and we go listen to that episode because we, we did a number on it, but that's a great rate. No, it's, it's, it's totally, I hope you enjoyed it. Be having not like watched it. The sum of all his parts.
0: Yeah, no, it was great. Yeah. Um, I was glad to say, we didn't even mention escape from New York. Like we could add that that movie never happens either. Yep. But I think that's a good lead into our nightcap. Have at it.
1: Sound like doesn't that remind you of like you know those cop shows from like the like SWAT or anything mm-hmm. like that? Like I, I like that little that little melody there, yep. to kind of break up, give us music for a slower moment in the film. But go ahead and hit us hit us with the nightcap.
0: So this isn't necessarily a question that you and I will give each other an answer. It's more um, a conversation, conversation than a follow up from Rye Nation. We can talk about a lot of the different things with Carpenter's filmmaking, but one of the under-discussed pieces of his success is the fantastic rogues gallery that we would find in his work. And so I don't need, you don't have to give me one or two. Let's just talk about a couple of his really good bad guys that you and I both have discovered in his work. Sure. And sort of the impact on film that they leave behind. And let's do the first one right away. Go ahead. The most obvious. Do Michael right away. Michael Yeah, I mean, do it. It's huge. It's definitely huge. The look, the presence,
1: the delivery, the psychological undertones that we talked about in that episode of what makes him tick and what made him kill Judith in the opening sequence versus what drives him to follow Laurie Strode in that film before they made it so familial and related is nothing short of frightening. And that's like real-world stalking and terror put into... Literally in the credits, the name of him is the shape. Yeah, that's the shape of evil. That's just the shape of anything there. It's the personification of you. Just put your fears on that mask. Whatever you see on there, that's what that's what he embodies. Like Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger. Like he became the. We talk a lot about Universal Monster because I think we're so heavily influenced by that type of uh, gothic monster. This is that version of the. 70s and 80s, and he was the first. Well, Leatherface was kind of the first, but like he's he's like he's on the bench compared to those guys.
0: This is so that much. Might, in- that might be
1: controversial for like a lot of because I know we like have a lot of listeners that love horror, but like Michael, Jason, and Freddie, that that's your starting lineup. Yeah, no question. And then like Ghostface and Chucky Penhead. and and Leatherface, like. They're bringing up the bench. They're going to give you some good minutes, but like, right? <laughs> these guys like give them the ball when the game's on the line. <laughs>
0: this the shape in Halloween is so much like the Universal monsters that in credits it's even delivered the same way as Karloff as the monster in Frankenstein, mm-hmm. the monster? Question mark? Question mark? Question yeah, mark? Yeah, that's good. Right? Mm-hmm. Same thing. Um, yes, that's the first one. Excellent. The second one I want to talk about is Christine. Mm. To take <laughs> a piece of steel. And imbue that with not only a dire agenda, but a weird, backwardsy, clandestine sort of attraction with the driver mm-hmm. that kind of inhabits the car that drives the purposes of it. Would you call that like a possession movie then? In a weird way, yes. Yeah. But this is going to be crazier. It's almost like a romance in some ways, too. Mm-hmm. Like that relationship between the boy and that car, and there's lots of nice relationships between people in their automobiles. Mm-hmm. This is different. Yeah, this is
1: borderline. Like, there's I'll never forget the sequence. So after like Christine tries to choke out the girl at the drive-in, and he takes her home, and she won't start up after he drops her off. So then he like kind of puts his head on the on the wind on the steering wheel and kind of like lightly like rubs like the wheel, plays with her, and then tries it again and it starts up. It's like, it's like, it's like borderline. It's like borderline actually. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. Right.
0: Yeah. Um, okay. So he's got good source material. Cause that's King obviously, mm-hmm. but then the delivery of that is equally powerful. I like that movie. Like that's yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that's a fun one. Kind of a B movie also, mm-hmm. but comes through pretty darn good. Okay. I'll hit you with the next one. Okay. The Duke of New York,
1: Mr. Isaac Hayes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another, like, gang element, kind of similar to, like, what this one was. But, like, he's the overlord over all the derelicts of New York City prison. And we talked about it on that episode. There's no cooler scene in a Carpenter film than him rolling up in that Cadillac with the chandeliers on top to that. Like, that's on the hydraulics. And that it has to... before he gets out of the car like cowboy hat gold chains and it's Isaac Hayes and it's Isaac Hayes that's like what makes it even that much more
0: that's the genius of casting Mm -hmm. I I can't say anything more to it than you just said right there that doesn't showcase what a like killer not deadly but like awesome villain that is Mm -hmm. yeah he's great hit me with another one I'm gonna give you David Lopan of course I'm going to shut up Mr. Button right (laughs) Um, from the look of his army and the hats to the, as wildly fantastic as that film is, David Lopan's goal, which is essentially a fucked up version of love, yeah, right? Green yeah. eyes. Mm-hmm. Is what drives that to somehow root sparks and lightning out of your fingers and falling a- Asian American warlords yes and boil that down into an understandable plight for love and and age
1: that film's bonkers bananas awesome. and it's one of the most entertaining films you could ever watch
0: that that movie alone yeah. if you take jack burton and david lopin mm-hmm. and just look at those two characters you'd be hard-pressed <laughs> in any film to find anyone that is As eleven on the dial that goes to ten is either of them are. Oh yeah. I always
1: (laughs) remember the scene of him and egg shen. It's like usually these guys. Yeah, egg shen. They they would usually fight with swords or sorcery. Like they literally have these rings and they pull up like this, like Mm -hmm. they pull up virtual fighters that do the fighting for them and he's and he's fighting like (laughs) with with his pinky finger. Yeah, <laughs> I love David Lopin. He's yeah. he's great. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. James James Hong, like yeah, just total. Yeah, he's been acting for so many years that, that that's his role. Like he he kills it as that. One more, you the thing.
0: I've heard of that one. The whole embodiment
1: of what the thing is. But when I say alien, you first thing that probably goes to is like little green guy or the greys with like they're tall with the eyes. I can't think other than like Giger's alien or even maybe the blob for that matter. That's just so interesting in what it looks like because it looks like us. And it's not until you shed that skin and you see the real alien that it's so monstrous on such a bastardized level of what the animal kingdom represents. I love it. And and it's good because it looks cool because of the practical effects.
0: Yes. Can I do one more than two? Yeah. The seafaring zombies in the fog. Like if we're going to do the Blake's, night of the Living Dead, yeah, Blake's ghost, yeah. Um, he finally gets to do it. Mm-hmm. It's a bit more ghastly than zombie, but it's essentially the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so what this movie did with the zombie element in Precinct, oh, good, yeah. He actually, I think, fully manifests in that film. So many different aliens, uh, psychopaths, zombies, gang members, black exploitation. What a cars! <laughs> Come on. Yeah, he's really kind of tackled many different... but And then even classic, too. I mean, I know Vampires isn't a great movie, but he even tackled classic. Yeah. And that movie doesn't suck because James Woods. That movie just sucks. It's not James Wood. That movie doesn't, you know...
1: Yeah. Or Society and They Live. Or, or The Prince of Darkness. Yes, the, the, the devil. devil. The devil himself, yeah. Never forget the devil's hand coming through the green goo to, like, enter our world. That's an interesting film, too. Oh, I, we forgot to mention maybe the most villainous of all of them, and it's Dr. Samuel Loomis, Donald Pleasence, like arguably more villainous than Michael Myers.
0: Fair argument. I'm just standing here on the street corner, watch these kids get slaughtered. Yeah. yeah. I shot them six times. <laughs> I shot them in the heart. Uh
1: No, that's good. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you brought up that question, because Carpenter has a way of writing really interesting and I think unique protagonists. Laurie Strode, Jack Burton, Snake Plissken. But he's good at the villains too.
0: Let me give you one side unrelated okay. cap question. Okay. If Sam Loomis mm-hmm. and Captain Shaw got into a fist fight, who's your money on? Are you talking about Robert yeah yeah robert shaw. robert shaw from jaws and donald Pleasance in halloween oh my gosh it's like who's drunker to fight it's a whole level of crazy hunger.
1: donald pleasance was like notoriously like uh like a bourbon and whiskey drinker like on a, on a lot of his sets and huh sounds like robert shaw there was this i heard this from another podcast i i listened to called in myers we trust and they, they're they just going through the halloween movies and they said that uh daniel harris the little girl in part Four always like and hey, Donald always had this kind of like smell coming off of him and it wasn't until I was like in my 20s and I realized it was bourbon 3 day old binger <laughs> just getting hammered showing up to the set how funny very funny excellent i love i love i love your choices so we're going to stay in this space for a little bit um and we're coming to a director who the last time we talked about him it was contentious to say the least <laughs> I'm yeah yeah. <laughs> that went a totally different direction than I ever anticipated. But we're starting with the beginning, and ideally, this is it was good at the beginning because it was so unique and fresh. Right. Talking about Quentin Tarantino again and 1992 Reservoir Dogs. Oh, man. Yeah.
0: This I'm, is going to be a great conversation. I'm
1: excited to see it because we could. Maybe not talk about how it's all played out because this is where it started and kind of like look at like how he molded his craft so early in this one little film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Music casting uh dialogue. Um, <laughs> you took it
0: dialogue disguised his monologue on R mm-hmm. R-rated Seinfeld like topics. Sure. Yeah. I think when we
1: rank this, I I don't think I rank this film particularly high because I don't revisit it a lot, but I can accept its its brilliance on what it meant at this time in the indie film movement, uh, going
0: on during Hollywood. So I'm excited to revisit oh. this one. Madsen Roth and Buscemi. Mm-hmm. Let's do this.
1: <laughs> so yeah, Tim Roth. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, and uh, Lawrence Tyranny is the ringleader of all of them. Yeah, I'm excited to to talk about Reservoir Dogs. Me too, Mr. Purple. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Pur- yeah, no, yeah. I'll, I'll be I'll be Mr. Mr. Brown. I could be Mr. Purple. You'd be Mr. Purple. Okay. Excellent. Until next week. Cheers, Matt. Cheers. Uh, Even though you don't think, we're going to go play potatoes, and I'm
0: totally going (laughs) to win. You're going to have to teach me how to play, because it just looked like a miasma of nonsense. Punching fists. (laughs) <laughs> One potato, two potato, three potato, four. Yeah. Yep. Until
1: next week, Rye Nation, thank you for uh, for listening to us uh, th- d- during uh, during here in the summer. Hopefully, we have some new films to talk about soon, but what better time now than revisit these old classics? So, Hang on,
0: everybody. New stuff is coming sooner or later. We want it to be later to make sure that the box office is solid. Exactly. Safety aside, I mean, that matters too, but we want the box office to kill. So hang on, and it's coming. And in the meantime, gives us a chance to talk about a bunch of classic stuff.
1: Until then, we'll see you next week.
0: Everybody have a great week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening
1: to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, Tune In, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave us a rating and review. We'd greatly appreciate it. Assault on Precinct 13 is property. Of the CKK Corporation and Turtle Releasing Organization, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. One, day, two, day, three, day, four, five, day, six, day, seven, three, more, eight, ten, nine,
0: day, ten, eleven Get my ass and go to heaven. Why, oh, you spelled you? I told you I'd lose. Goddamn it, we're gonna do it again. Hey, hey, there isn't time.